Father, as we just sang in these wonderful songs, all of our hope is in all that you are for us in Christ, who is even right now as we pray to you at the right hand, at your right hand. Our Lord, you are there interceding for us as our good shepherd, the one in whom we have life and have life abundantly promised to us and given to us through your death, your resurrection, and your sending of the Spirit once you ascended to the place where you are now. And you have given us as well your word to instruct us, to give us wisdom, to give us hope, to give us conviction, as well as to restore us and train us in righteousness and to mold us and to be the people you would have us to be as we await to be with you. Finally, we hope with your return soon, but even at death, where you gave the promise that the one who believes in you will never die because we will pass immediately into your presence and into the glories of the, the next step and the next and a fuller realization of our salvation in you. So we pray even as we open your word this morning that you would be our teacher, um, that you would work all good things in us that would end in the promotion of your glory through our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bible, if you will, to uh, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. It's been a little while, but we are going to find ourselves uh, back in this passage. Daniel chapter 9, you'll remember, verses 24 through 27. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. And again, it's been a few weeks since we've been there here, and it's been even longer since we've been in Revelation, which was the springboard to take us in to Daniel chapter 9, because Daniel chapter 9, in God's prophetic word, holds a particular place of prominence. It is one of the most uh, clear anticipations of the framework of God's purposes for the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, that was the message of Gabriel, that he came to declare what God's purposes were, speaking to Daniel, to your people and to your city, that is, to the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem, where God's name uniquely dwelled in the temple of God. That is to say, God formed the nation of Israel. He placed his name in the city of Jerusalem, particularly at the temple of God. That's what the psalmist was even praying for there, being in the presence of God, uniquely dwelling in the temple. And it was in this city that the purposes of God for much of human history were worked out both in his declaration of his name, his working through the people of Israel. And it was a tragic history in many ways, filled with high points and delights, but also filled with the theme repeatedly of failure and of judgment. But the hope of God's word gives us is that the moment of judgment is never the last word when it comes to God's redemptive purposes. There is salvation through judgment, and even through the judgment of Israel came salvation, came the Savior, and will ultimately one day come the fulfillment of promises yet to be known by his people. And so Daniel 9 lays this out for us in what is known as the 70 weeks, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And it is a significant passage, as I noted, but it is also one of the most contested in debated passages in terms of the exact and precise interpretation of it. We've looked at a little bit of that in the past as we've walked through it. I'm not going to repeat it all here. Only to say that it is a passage that really engages the reader and is important to understand with clarity and specificity as much as we can. 
And indeed, I believe that we have a great amount of specificity here that we can know, which is exactly why God gave it to us. It's not to leave us in the dark. It is to bring us light. It was not to, to leave his people confused. It was to give them hope and definite promises that they could rely on, as is all of God's word. It's the same as when we come to Revelation. Some people just throw their hands up and go, well, it's just so, it's so complicated, we just can't understand anything. But that is a wrong way to approach the word of God. And indeed, it's a rather thin view of inspiration. God gave us his word to be understood. He gave us revelation so that it could be understood, so that it could be a form of a place of hope for his people and give them wisdom and give them light. And so it is when we come to any prophetic portion of scripture, and particularly here again in Daniel chapter 9. Now, we're not going to review everything that we've covered so far, but I do want to read the passage for us and then quickly bring us to where we left off uh, several weeks ago. So Daniel chapter 9. Now I'll remind you just very briefly of the context of Daniel chapter 9, or the book of Daniel itself. Daniel is one who was taken during uh, one of the first, uh, essentially, raids of Babylon against Jerusalem as God was enacting the judgment that he foretold upon his people, having already taken the northern tribes to exile in 722 B.C. He is now preparing to take his people in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem into exile. Daniel, this happened in three waves. Daniel was a part of the first wave, the elite of the group, and he's taken into Babylon. While he is in Babylon, a variety of things happen, but one of those is, is that the completion of God's destruction and his judgment on his people is completed. And that means then that the people of Jerusalem underwent horrific destruction through famine and siege. It means the temple lay in ruins. It was burned and it was destroyed. The walls were broken down. The place where God's name dwelled was shambles. And his people were kicked out of the land that God had promised to them because of their sin. And that is the condition of Jerusalem and of the temple at the writing of Daniel and at the writing of this prophecy. What inspired this prayer of Daniel that's recorded for us in chapter 9 and ultimately the end of which brought the angel Gabriel to reveal to him the prophetic word, this particular prophetic word, was the fact that Daniel saw that not only did God declare the destruction of Jerusalem that would come, but he declared the restoration of Jerusalem that would come after a foreordained period of 70 years. That's 70 years. And so this is certainly a word of hope, but we have to remember it's a word of hope to a people who were in captivity, who were outside of the land that God had promised, and were seemingly, and in fact were, under his judgment. And so we come then to Daniel chapter 24 through 27. And we are in distant future going to come back to the book of Daniel again. But as I noted, we're going to focus our attention here. So let me read the passage and then we'll pick up where we left off. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. For you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 
It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. And even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This then is a fascinating, fascinating and incredibly clear framework for God's purposes for the nation of Israel. And as we've noted many times, God's purposes for the nation of Israel are tied up with God's purposes for the entire world. That is a consistent theme through both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God's purposes for Israel involve God's purposes for the world. That's how he designed it. And God's purposes for Israel then all the way to the end are declared for us here in this passage. Now, as we noted in verse 24, the prophecy is given by Gabriel, beginning with a summary of all of God, the end of God's purposes. And it is for God to make an end of the sin of his people and to bring in everlasting righteousness associated with the Messiah, that it would be a kingdom of righteousness. This was the hope of the prophets. This was the hope of God's people, that one day a kingdom would come in righteousness, a kingdom would come uh, marked by righteousness in which their king, the promised son of David, would be reigning over them in the land that they were kicked out of now, but one day would be restored, would be fruitful, would be a time of peace, would be a time of joy, would be a time of unending blessing. And he marks this time that is to come by a period that he lays out for us as 70 weeks. And it's 70 weeks that he divides into three different sections. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and seven weeks. Each one of these periods is marked by a definitive working of God, a definitive purpose of God within that time frame. And here, he lays out the beginning of that in verse 25 and says, You are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So in other words, 70 weeks is a divine clock. It's a timetable, as it were. And the beginning of this clock, the stopwatch, as it were, for this prophetic uh, word of God, begins what he says here is the issuing of a decree. Now, we looked at that in some slight detail before. And without, again, repeating that, the conclusion was that the best decree here, uh, or the, the best uh, decree here that to identify with this anticipation is a decree from one named Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., Brief reminder, as Israel was taken out of the land in three different waves, they were also brought back into the land in fulfillment of God's promise in three different ways. This decree by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. was the third of those returns to the land in the final. And that is what we associate with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, who received this decree, then went in back to Jerusalem by the authority of the king. He rebuilt the walls and the moats and so forth, the city of Jerusalem, the temple foundation and temple already having been laid and built, this was the completion of God's work, which is precisely what he says here. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. 
So you argued here then that the best decree to mark this with is 445 B.C., which was the starting of the clock. But the starting of the clock is also given a bookend. And it starts with the issuing of decree, but he says it's going to end at the end of when the Messiah is cut off. When the Messiah is cut off. So it begins with this initial period of one week, and as we noted before, just as a reminder, one week, each day in this week is a year. So one week would be seven years and, uh, or excuse me, uh, yeah, would be seven years and so forth. And so here he says then, you are to know from the rebuilding of that seven weeks, so that's 49 years, excuse me, not one week, seven weeks, 49 years, and then following that 49 years is it's two, 62 weeks, and the, the bookend of that uh, from the beginning of the clock is uh, the Messiah coming and being cut off. Now, what was the reason for the first seven years, 49 years? Well, the best, the best understanding of that is probably that those first 49 years, what happened after 49 years after the decree then of Artaxerxes? Well, most likely this marks the completion of the work of Nehemiah. It's even been suggested that it was the end of God's prophetic word. Remember that there was about 400 years of silence between the last writing prophet, the last prophet to Israel, and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would match up uh, very closely with that. And so that's likely that period that he's talking about, the issuing of the decree, the completion of the work, and the ending of the prophetic word for the people of God. And then we have within that the beginning of this 62 weeks, this 62 weeks, after which he says the Messiah will be cut off. And we talked about this last time. That is to say, this is after the appearance of Christ as the Messiah of Israel, as the promised one, as the son of David, and after his crucifixion. And that is the account for us given in the life of Christ and laid out for us in the Gospels. He says the Messiah will be cut off, and when the Messiah is cut off, essentially that stops the clock. That stops the clock. Now, I kind of went over this rather quickly last time. I want to just swing back and just give you an example here of the specificity of this promise, of this prophecy of God. And again, the precision is remarkable. And I would just here as a side note say that this is what makes Scripture stand out from any other pseudo work of God or pseudo or claimed word from God. You'll remember that's always been something that the people of God have faced, even in the Old Testament, false prophets coming, making false prophecies concerning the people of God. But the people will always discern what was the actual word of God. And the actual word of God is that word which came about, which was true, which was accomplished by God. And in fact, even in the book of Isaiah, as in many places, God lays out in extensive detail, particularly ranging from about chapter 41 to chapter 45, in detail in a courtroom kind of scenario that he is the one true God. He is the one true God to be trusted. He is the only true God because he declares something and it comes about. He tells something before it happens and it happens. Why? Because his word goes forth and it will be accomplished. The word of idols, the word of vain boasters, the word of false prophets does not come about because it is not a word of God and they have no power. But the word of God that is the word of God through his prophets does come about. And so it is a testimony. And as a matter of fact, the specificity of Daniel in particular, but of other books of the Bible, but particularly of Daniel, is so clear 
It's so right on. It's so exactly corresponds to the historical realities, which are the fulfillment of that word, that Daniel, more than any other book, is attacked by liberal scholars because they say, well, nothing could be this specific. It had to be a late date of Daniel written after the events. And then they'll argue, but it was written to encourage the people to try to give them a spiritual pump, as it were, to trust in God, who is really going to fulfill all of the good things for them. They say clearly it's far too precise, it has far too much detail and far too much accuracy, those who reject the inspiration of the word of God, to have actually been written before the events happened. But that's simply not the case, and the arguments for that are not our purpose this morning. The purpose this morning is just to say that when God says something, he reveals it to be understood, it's clear, and it will happen, and so it is with this promise. So he says then, very definitely, God lays his own character and power on the line by setting a very definite time period, and that is of 69 weeks before the death of the Messiah, the appearance of Christ to the nation of Israel and his being cut off. And again, the precision of this prophecy is remarkable. Uh, one of the most well-known detailed defenses of this was given by a name, uh, man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson back in the late 18th century in his work, A Prince to Come, A Prince to Come. It's gone through, as a matter of fact, so popular was it, it has gone through 10 editions. It keeps getting reprinted. And the calculations he gave were precise calculations from the issuing of the decree of Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. to the crucifixion of Christ. And these accounts, and there's several chapters of this, which we're not going to review, but taking into account the 360-day prophetic year, which we've already noted, the leap years and the reckoning of the calendar by Jewish practice, the precise datings provided in the Gospels, especially Luke, about the appearance of Christ, both his birth and the Passovers and so forth, and the year gap year moving from A.D. to B.C., the following concluding assessment in accord with Anderson's work, I'm actually going to quote from Charles Feinberg. I thought he, he gave a better summary than Anderson did in his own work, but... Uh, following essentially the calculations of Anderson, Charles Feinberg notes this in his commentary on Daniel. He says, and I'll read, and it should be on the screen. How many days elapsed between March 14, 445 B.C. and April 6, A.D. 32? The calculated interval was exactly 173,880 days, which is equal to seven times 69 prophetic years of 360 days each. And that 360 days is affirmed in that passage there given in Revelation and others, but specifically there. How is this figure arrived at? From 445 B.C. to A.D. 32 is 476 years since there was no year zero, which is equal to 173,856 days. 476 years times 365 days per year plus 116 days for leap years. Moreover, we must include the interval from March 14th to April 6th reckoned inclusively according to Jewish practices, which is an additional 24 days. This 24 days added to the 805... 173,856 days already calculated totals, again, 173,880 days, considering prophetic years, the same number of days that are in the 69 weeks of the prophetic years. So what is he saying here? As he goes on with that, when he mentions the, the end of this day at the beginning is 32 A.D. 32. What happened in A.D. 32? It was the death of Christ. It was the death of Christ. It was precisely, precisely to the day, according to these calculations, that were in some detail 
that this fulfillment was made known before the world and carried out before the world. That Christ came, he was acknowledged as Messiah to the nation of Israel. At the end of a period of three years, he was cut off, he was crucified, rejected by his people, exactly as was predicted. Now, although some argue that the date of Jesus' triumphal entry was actually earlier at 30 A.D., and some find a reasonable solution then into starting with the second decree of Artaxerxes, which was in 448-58 B.C., it seems that the best and the most detailed defense is consistent with Anderson's dates, and are the mo- which are the most solid and the most likely. Now, that kind of specificity is supernatural. That kind of specificity can come only from a God who controls every single detail of his creation to accomplish his word, to watch over his word, and to make sure it does exactly what he says it would do. And that is a kind of degree of sovereignty and power and clarity that the unbelieving mind simply will not accept. But it is true. But it is true. But then he goes on. He says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. We noted that his disciples had abandoned him. Then it seemed that there was nothing in the fruit of the nation of Israel as a whole, although there, of course, were believing Jews, and that was the first church, but the first church, beginning of the church. But when he was cut off, he seemed to be have nothing. His disciples in Acts were hiding in a room, only a few in number in Jerusalem, scared to show their face. And then he notes another event to pay attention to. He says, and this is after he is cut off in the crucifixion, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end there will be war and desolations are determined. So who is he talking about here? Who is the prince, the people of the prince who is to come? Well, it cannot be a reference to Christ and his followers as some want to make it. First of all, because they are destroying the city and the sanctuary. They are agents of destruction. So who then is the prince who is to come of who the people are the agents of destruction? Who is he? The prince who is to come is, if you look down in verse 27, he who will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This he, which we're going to look at next week, as this, which is the prince who is to come, is none other than the one known to us as the Antichrist. Again, we're going to have more on that next week. He is the one who is the fulfillment in the embodiment of a particular individual of man's rebellion to God by satanic inspiration and satanic influence and satanic empowerment. Here, the point is to notice that Gabriel does not say, however, that it is the prince who is to come who is the means of destruction, but rather the people of the prince who is to come, those who are identified with his kingdom and particularly with his future kingdom. So then who are these people? Well, if the prince who is to come is the Antichrist, these people then are people of the Antichrist. Now, in one sense, the New Testament tells us specifically that the Antichrist is already present in the world, 1 John 4, 3, and has followers. 
Don't turn there, but 1 John 2.18 says this. You're familiar with this. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. That is, many who are in the same ilk in the stream of the one who will be the final manifestation of this rebellion to God and this trickery and this deception. So in a general sense, this could refer to anyone who is, as Paul says in Colossians 1, under the domain of darkness, or as he says to the Ephesians, who are children of the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath, people of the prince of the power of the air. In one sense, it could refer to all then unbelievers who are part of the God of this world. However, the prophecy is more specific and refers to a specific people and specific events who bring about the destruction of the city and the sanctuary, which is Jerusalem and the temple, which, as a footnote here, presupposes, remember, that when Daniel is giving this prophecy, there was no city and there was no temple, right? It was destroyed. It was crumbled to the ground. It was trampled underfoot. So the fact that it is going to be destroyed, this city and sanctuary, necessitates that it will be rebuilt again and then destroyed again, just as it was the first time. Now that's going to be important later, particularly as we get to verse 27. But here, I want you simply to notice that it is a time in which there is a rebuilding of Jerusalem, after a rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, that it will be destroyed by these people of the prince to come. It means they would return to the land and they would accomplish these things, but again, just as the first time, their sin would bring it to ruin. Which also, just as a footnote then, means that this isn't a fulfillment of what he anticipated back in chapter 24. Bringing in everlasting righteousness. Bringing in this kingdom. So he can't be referring to that either, because it certainly isn't those events. So what destruction is he talking about here? That will come by the people of the prince to come. This is a destruction that was fulfilled, and this is universally understood, and of necessity. Was fulfilled in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, which marked the end of the Jewish war, almost the end. It actually came a few years later, the destruction of the people in Masada. But particularly as related to this, the city of Jerusalem and the temple, it was in 70 AD at the marking the end of the, or the, the Roman quelching of the re Jewish rebellion there under the hand of the Roman general Titus and his army, which are specifically the people here of the prince to come. They were acting under the purposes of God for the destruction and the judgment of his people, but they were acting more immediately under the influence even of the evil one who wanted to destroy and always wants to destroy the Jewish people. So Gabriel goes on to note that after this destruction, this initial destruction, it will be followed by continued oppression of the Jewish people. Look what he says. And its end will come with the flood. That means, that's simply speaking of the complete devastation, the total devastation that will come to the people of God. And even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. So note what he's doing. Its end will come with the flood, but the opposition to the, the Jewish people, the opposition to the nation of Israel, will be a continual, ongoing reality. It's going to continue after that. And this is according to the decree of God. But notice as well that this opposition, unlike the very clear dates uh, given before is left open 
There's no specific time given given to this. He simply says, desolations are determined. And again, we're going to come back to this. In verse 27, you pick up an entirely different theme. An entirely different theme that is marked off by an entirely specific time period of one week. That is seven years. But here, these desolations are left essentially open-ended. It's going to be a continual pattern. There's going to be continual opposition against the people of God. They are going to continually be weakened because of their sin and under the judgment of God. Now, this kind of opposition and some of the things that anticipated the final end are recorded for us even in Daniel, which includes the infamous precursor of the coming Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And again, I know I keep saying this, but we're going to get to that. More later, But the prophecy here extends far beyond that. And of course, the temple wasn't destroyed then. It was still standing. So it extends far beyond Antiochus, extends far off into the future. Now, in order to clarify this a bit, I want you to turn with me, if you will, briefly to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. And I want to quickly look at verses 20 through 24. 20 through 24. Why are we turning to Luke chapter 21? Because Jesus is anticipating this in Luke chapter 21 specifically. Specifically. Now we know that in the ministry of Jesus, in his interaction with the disciples, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there was mention made to the disciples that the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. And that was in response to an admiration of the temple, its beauty, and he's saying, don't Don't get caught up with that. It's going to be destroyed. And so in verse 20 through 21, uh, or excuse me, 20 through 24 of chapter Luke, he, he focuses in on that reality. He focuses in on that reality. Now let me just read it, and then I want to make a few points. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land, and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, and will be led captive into all the nations, And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot, and here's a key, underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This is a specific marker of a definite time period that is left open-ended as to its time, but it marks the character of this time. That it will be a time of the Gentiles that will ultimately come to completion according to the purposes of God. So I want to make some observations here. First of all, this period described by Luke in verse 20 through 24, uh, I would understand with others, is to be a distinct description of Christ's eschatological return, which he does describe beginning in verse 25, where he says, There will be signs, sun, moon, stars on the earth, dismay among the nations and perplexity, so forth. In verse 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and glory. But this is a time that is marked off before that. The parallel passages referring to the end of the age are in Mark chapter 24 and Mark, verse, and Mark chapter 13. 
But if you go back up to verse 12 of Luke 21, he says this. After he mentions signs in heaven, which he picks up in verse 25, he has this little uh, marked off section in verse 12. And he says, but before all of these things, in other words, before these signs of heaven, before the great earthquake, before the famines, before the terrors and the great signs, before those things there's another kind of opposition and persecution that's going to come that is going to end in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he picks up with these signs again and again back in verse 25. Now this is actually parallel to what Daniel's going to do in Daniel chapter 9, 26 through 27. As I said, at the end of chapter 26, verse 26, he leaves it open in. Desolations are determined. And then he picks it up with another event that is clearly marked off by the seven weeks in verse 27. Events that are yet to happen. In a very similar way, that's what Jesus is doing here as it's recorded for us in Luke. He's giving a definite marker before all these things. It's ended with an indefinite period of time, the time of the Gentiles, followed by a description of events that will take yet place yet future after what he just described. This is just how prophecy works. I'll show you some of that a bit later. So this period in is set off. He's talking about a unique period. It's set off from the descriptions of Mark, um, as I mentioned, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, by a lack of those same details. Let me give you just a few. It's not that period when many will come in my name. It's not given the description of the great tribulation, which has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or ever will. It's not mentioned that these days are so bad that they would have to be cut sh short lest no flesh were survive. In this destruction particularly, it is not marked by the astronomical signs and so forth that will come at the end of the age. As a matter of fact, he specifically sets it off from that time in verse 12 and says, before those things, before those signs, this is going to happen. There also is no direct connection at all with the abomination of desolations, which are spoken of through Daniel, which is mentioned by both Matthew and Mark. So none of those details are a part of this section here. Those are coming later. And on this note, too, Luke 21, verses 25 through 26, marks off, again, as I noted, those eschatological signs. And as he says in verse 35 of Luke chapter 21, when he, now that he's in this new section of those things that were determining the end of the age, he says, it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth, or those who dwell on the face of all of the earth. In other words, this is distinct, those times afterward. In the previous part, 21 through 20, 20 through 24, he's discussing what's going to come to Jerusalem. He switches in verse 25 to this eschatological return when the Son of Man will come in glory and power. And he says, these are the things that will come upon the whole earth, on all of the earth, on all of those who dwell there. Now then, what is the character of this time? The character of this time, again, it's marked by four the people of God, here referring to the disciples and, of course, those who were, would be followers of Christ. Persecution, persecution that would lead to their witness. This is verses 12 down to verse 19. Universal opposition by the nations, primarily, again, against believing Jews, the apostles, but including the Jewish nation as a whole. And the link between this near fall of so then he's defer, referring here then to this fall of the Jerusalem and this destruction of Jerusalem. And there he's anticipating in Luke 21 that which would come by General Titus, the Roman General Titus. Now, 
How then does this fall, though, connect this list of events with those that will come at the end of the age? Those that will come, it's sandwiched right in between. And very often in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, actually they're asking the question of when will these things be? And Jesus jumps right in immediately to the final culmination of those. So we have particularly here in Luke chapter 21, the most extended discussion of just that event of the destruction of Jerusalem before he gets into uh, those things related to the end. And the link is this. The link is this. The link is, is that in the destruction of Jerusalem, and the same really in the first destruction of Jerusalem under the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, there is an anticipation of the judgment of God that still yet awaits its final and fullest cataclysmic event. So there is one event that anticipates a greater event. And again, we're going to see that again with Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one near fulfillment or near uh, a near event that anticipated the greater fulfillment and in fact looks forward to its character. And so this link between the near fall of Jerusalem and the eschatological descriptions of the final judgment on Israel is that near fulfillment anticipates the final fulfillment. As a matter of fact, I think one summarizes clear. I'll say a couple more things. He summarized it this way, and I, I think this is right on. I would agree. He says, he wants to make clear that when Jerusalem falls the first time, it is not yet the end. Nonetheless, the two falls are related, and the presence of one pictures what the ultimate siege will be like. Both are eschatological events in God's plan, with the fall of Jerusalem being the down payment and guarantee of the end times. I think that's a very clear way to understand the connection. Now, this is demonstrated well by John's use of similar imagery, for example, in Revelation chapter 11, 2. And let me just read it. You don't have to turn there. He says, leave, the, leave out the court now. In Revelation, he's speaking of this eschatological kind of destruction. Destruction. He says, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, what's the difference between that statement, then, if this is the eschatological time and what Jesus said? One, a definite time period, 42 months. It's marked out. That 42 months, as we'll see, coincides with the week that he's going to talk about in verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. That's not what he does in Luke chapter 21. He leaves it open-ended. He doesn't give a definite time because it's not the same period. But it is an anticipation of that period. It is an anticipation of the destruction that would come. So this is supported also by the phrase, I believe, in Luke 21, in verse 30, where is it? In verse 27. I think it's in verse 27. No. Let me get there. Verse 32, excuse me. Verse 32 of Luke 21, where he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. We'll talk about another phrase that engenders a lot of discussion. It's this one. I'll tell you how I think this connects here. While stated after the switch to the specific signs of the eschatological physical return of Christ, again noted in verse 27, the point is that the events of destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, verses 20 through 24, are the same kind as that which will mark off her final catastrophic destruction at the end of the age. 
And so the generation that sees the events of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD have, in effect, seen the kind of judgment that marks the end of the age that is coming. And you say, well, that's kind of crazy. Well, let me suggest to you that's how Jesus talks. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 16, for example, and I just want to illustrate that, how this language works. And we could go through many other illustrations, but you're more familiar with this one. In Matthew chapter 16, you'll remember that Jesus has just said to his disciples, discipleship is going to be costly. And then he declares to them that not only is it going to be costly for you, but it's going to be you who follow the Son of Man, who's also going to suffer at the hands of the chief priest and so forth. He's going to be killed and he's going to rise. Something he had told them again and again in verse 28 of Matthew 16. He says there this, then he says this. There are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some who are physically standing with him right there, his disciples. He declared as he says, you will not die until you see with your eyes the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. Well, that hasn't happened. And it certainly doesn't refer to the coming of the Spirit in any of those. Or you'd say all of them are going to see it and the whole world is going to see it. No, no, no. He's talking about something distinct that is going to happen. And so what, what's happening? How does he fulfill this? Every single case of that statement being made is followed by this. And six days later, Jesus took James and John and Peter to a mountain. Remember the mountain? When he took them up to the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. And while they were on the mount of transfiguration, they saw this glorious scene. They saw Jesus Christ in this image of the clothes, white and pure, blinding kind of whiteness. And with him, they saw Moses and Elijah. You remember, that's when Peter, again, blurted out, let us make three tabernacles. Immediately, God the Father speaks from heaven in the pres his presence being known by a cloud. And it puts terror into the disciples when he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In other words, there's not any kind of comparison, as glorious as that is to see Elijah and Moses. This is my son. He is the one that you listen to. Now, what is the significance of that in relation to what I've been saying? That was a fulfillment of his promise that they will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Was that the fullness of it? No. Was that the final execution of it? No. Couldn't have been. That's still anticipated. Even in his trial, Jesus is telling the leaders who are persecuting him, you're still going to see the Son of Man coming. Well, was Jesus confused? No, but we have to understand how prophetic language works and how that works in the outworking of God. What they saw in Christ was a foretaste, a glimpse into the glory that will be when he returns on the cloud in the glory of the Father with all of the holy angels. Do you see that? You're gonna, you've seen the glory of his coming. Not, it's not fully in fruition yet. There's still things to happen, but you've seen a taste of it. And so in that sense, you've seen that glory that is going to mark that age. I think there's a similar way that he's using that here. This generation who is here 
will see the destruction that is coming upon the city of Jerusalem, on the temple, on the nation of Israel. And if you've seen that, you've seen what is going to come at the end of the age. The kind of terror and the kind of horror of God's judgment of his people for their sin, his vengeance. And so the destruction of Jerusalem under the reign of Caesar, and by, particularly by the hand of the Roman general Titus, was an incredibly terrible event and fitting anticipation of the destruction of the end. Although Jerusalem had been plundered other times in her history, this was only the second time that she was utterly destroyed, utterly wiped out in the most horrific kind of situation. Obviously, the first came, as mentioned, by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And that siege and the terrors of that siege and the suffering of that siege and the horrible nature of that siege is recorded for us in the book of Lamentations. And that is why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, weeping over the destruction that was coming upon his people. On the ground, he says in chapter 2, verse 21, in the streets lie young and old. Many virgins and young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them not sparing. You have called us in the day of an appointed feast. My terrors on every side. There is no one who escaped or survived. In the day of the Lord's anger, those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. There was famine, terrible famine. Terrible bitterness. He has filled me, Jeremiah said, thinking of these things with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. It's terrible. And yet, that's the exact same kind of destruction. And in many ways, by Josephus, a, a, a Jewish historian, the exact same kind of language that was used to describe the terrors that happened at the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., I'm going to just give you some excerpts. Speaking of the famine, after accounting for this woman who had actually entered back into the city, she was a woman of means and she had food, and then tells the story about her, the soldiers continually coming in and taking her food until finally she was at this point of desperation in her starvation that he says this, she reasoned among herself, Josephus records, she reasoned among herself that my son's going to die anyway, and even if he survived, he'd be thrown into the hands of the soldiers, so she's going to do this. She's going to kill her son and eat him. And so Josephus records this. As soon as she had said this, she killed her son and then roasted him and ate the one half of him and kept the other half of him concealed. And so terrible was this event when they heard of it, when the soldiers came back in and they wanted to take food. She told them what she had done and then she showed them the other half of her son and they were so terrified, so horrified and so disgusted that they left distraught and never came back to her again. How about the carnage? And this picks up on the words we just read from Lamentations. Speaking of the Roman soldiers, when they came into the temple area and when they came in to carry out the slaughter of those who were still there, it says the ground did did nowhere appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it, but the soldiers went over heaps of those bodies as they ran upon such as fled from them. Another place he describes blood that was flowing out putting out fires in some places because it was so great in quantity. And then of the destruction of the temple, he says this, just an excerpt. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple 
And it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up of the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came there believe it had ever been inhabited. He did in those instructions as well tell them to leave certain parts. One part of that is what we now have is the western wall, the wailing wall. There's a part of what was intentionally left by Titus, Josephus records that for us in his, in his instructions. So it was terrible. It was of such terror that it brought back the tragic memories of God's destruction of his people and their exile into the land that now he destroyed them again. And it was of such of a nature, he says, yes, and this is yet again going to happen. But if you've seen this, you've seen the kind of suffering that is going to come upon my people for their disobedience yet again, yet again. So within this period, Jesus announces then the prophesied destruction of the Jerusalem and the abandonment of Jerusalem, but again, for a specific period of time. Look again what he says. Until, Akri, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is a definite period of divinely determined time. It is not given an end date specifically. It is left open-ended. And it's going to be a judgment on the people of Israel for their rejection of their Messiah. For their rejection of him. As a matter of fact, he said back in 19, I believe if you don't turn there, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, and the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, surround you and hem you in on every side, and they'll level you to the ground and your children within you, and so on. Anticipating that as well. Because they would not receive their Messiah. But again, it's not the final abandonment of his people, which is apparent in Jesus' own words following that in the supper, which we're going to remember in just a bit, when he says, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine again until when? Until the kingdom of God comes. Until the kingdom of God comes. There's still a kingdom. It's still going to come, and I'm still going to reign. Now, there are some significant observations then to be made from this that will also help to give context from Daniel chapter 9. Particularly to the statement in Daniel chapter 9. That is then referred to in Daniel chapter 9. Is what is referred to as the continuing destruction. The place will be destroyed. It will be leveled to the ground. It will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And indeed isn't that the very history that we've experienced since then? It's been the history of the Jewish people. Jerusalem has fallen into the hands over her history to the Muslims, then to the Crusaders, back to the Muslims again, back and forth. As a matter of fact, the Jews didn't have access to the temple area again into the area of Jerusalem until they were a nation again in 1948. And that, and then after the Six-Day War in, I think, 1967. That's been the history of the Jewish people. They've been some of the most hated people throughout the history of the world. There's rarely been a people hated like the Jews, and yet they remain a nation. And yet, for the first time since the exile, they are a sovereign political nation within their own land promised by God. Significant. Significant. And we're going to see why even more later. But there they are, hated by all around them. Hated 
not only hated by all those around them, particularly the Palestinians now who chant openly in the streets, death to Israel, they want nothing other than her complete annihilation and destruction. But more and more and more and more, the hatred is even increasing from Western nations in opposition to the nation of Israel as the hatred globally is mounting against the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Well, if we understand these words correctly, we'd say that's terrible, but it's expected. That's what we would expect to happen. Why? Because he said what would happen. And now it is. And so there it is. The nation survives yet as a reminder of God's providential plan. And as we come into this next week and wrap it up with the Antichrist, it's a reminder to all of us. As we are continually reminded and as one of the specific applications of the prophetic word is to remember that God is on his throne. He will bring salvation. He will bring judgment and he will bring salvation to his people. And God's promises will none of them fall to the ground without being accomplished. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. But not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he said none of his words will fail. And so when we come to the Bible, just do what I read before we come back next week. When we come to the Bible, we have the word of a very living God. Do you realize that there's nothing in this whole of creation, nothing, not one single thing that doesn't have the potential to fail or disappoint? The only absolute, certain, and sufficient thing that we have is the word of God and every single word of it. And so we can trust him who gave it to us. And hopefully we have run to him for refuge, we who are here this morning. And we remember that refuge that he provided for us through his death, through his resurrection, through his propitiation, and these elements on the table. So as I pray, the men will come and bring, you, uh, bring them, come forward, and then they'll pass out the elements, and we'll remember together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity at which you revealed yourself to us. Thank you for the promises you give to us. Every earthly thing will fail, and as you've told us, one day everything will be destroyed. This world, you said, is passing away. But the one who does your will abides forever. And that is a tremendous promise, not only in terms of your judgment on this world, but in terms of your providence in our life, in all of its ups and downs, in all of its trials and blessings. To remember we yet stand under the reign and the rule of our good and sovereign king. Help us to trust you. Learn to walk with you by faith and hope, and the greatest of these, you said, is to walk also in love as a response to the redemption we have received in the Lord Jesus. Remind us of these great truths and these elements that you have given to us for that very purpose, and we pray in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen.